Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Danny Kelly. Welcome to another edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life. On this show, I'm joined by a genuine British sporting legend. Alan Wells began his career as a triple and long jumper before he changed direction mid-career to become a sprinter and reach the very pinnacle of his sport. He's best remembered for winning the gold medal at the 100 metres at the Moscow Olympics in 1980, where he also took silver in the 200 metres. He won four Commonwealth gold medals, three European golds, and along the way proved himself beyond doubt the best sprinter in the world. On My Sporting Life, I'm joined by an Olympic great, Alan Wells. Alan Whipper Wells, MBE, born the 3rd of May 1952 in Edinburgh, Scotland. Um, I've got to ask you, Whipper? Well, my, my parents obviously thought they would keep uh, the Canadian um, connection uh, in line. And, and, and Which is name, what, sorry? Well, their name, main name, family name was Whipper. And, uh, Are they Canadian? Uh, well, the, yeah, from my, um, my mother's sister. A husband, so uh-huh. so um, Whipper became the middle name, and uh, you know it could have been Whippy, Mister Whippet, and <laughs> you name it. I've been called it. Uh, when people found out about that middle name, it was uh, it, it kind of gave me a sore head, but uh, we can live with it. Okay, well, you you, you grew up in Edinburgh, I think, uh, Fernieside Crescent. Mm. Tell us about growing up uh, in Edinburgh. Well, Fernieside Crescent, it did actually hold. Uh, Another great athlete called Chris Black, the hammer thrower. Really? And, uh, yeah, I thought I'd tell you something you didn't know, actually. <laughs> well, I, I, you'll be telling me lots of things I don't know, I hope, well, in the next two hours. Well, Chris and I lived, um, well, certainly I lived, I, I've got to say that when I looked out my window as a young boy, I, I overlooked the finish of 100 metres on a track 100 metres away from me. And so I could see the last 30 metres of the 100 metres and I could see the middle bit through the houses. So, I mean, if that was not a, a sort of inclination to take up the sport, I don't know what was. But I was always, um, I was always involved with running and uh, I was always ro- involved with uh, competition at the primary school. I was always known as being a, a reasonably fast runner. And, um, yeah, you know, so, I mean, <clears throat> growing up in that environment, uh, it, it, was, it was always going to lead me towards... Uh, Probably taking up the sport, which I did. Um, I, I was in the boys' brigade. I was doing other sport. I was doing other things with the uh, boys' brigade. I was in the 9th Edinburgh Company, which was the uh, biggest ed- company in Edinburgh at the time, and it has been for quite a few years. Um, so there was um, there was a lot of sort of involvement with different things that were going on around me and uh, and and in what I was sort of doing. So tell me about your folks. Well, you know they were. Hard working. My old man was a 
Well, I'm not quite sure what he was really. He was a. What do you mean you're not sure what he was? Well, he could do everything. He was he was handy with his hands. He he could uh, he could fix what everything. What's his name, Alan? Um, George. Yeah. George Wells, and uh, my mother was Catherine. Unfortunately, they're they're not with mm-hmm. us anymore. Um, but um, you know, I think that uh, when I had uh, done what I did, um, they just were gobsmacked. You know, they were they're very proud. I mean, obviously, it's a. You know, looking back that far, um, and of course, moving down south. I mean, there's a lot of things that we've got to talk about. But sure. um, you know, they they were very proud, quietly, qu- very proud of what I did. Uh, they came to see me quite a few times, and uh, I think they I think they found it difficult to handle. Um, but to be quite, what do you mean by that, Alan? Well, I think having somebody uh, in the family um, doing what I did, I, I think they just. Uh, I think it was a new thing for the whole family, all the relations. Uh, nobody had done what I do- had done. And, um, you know, that achievement, I think, affected everybody that was related to the family. And uh, it was a good thing, of course. I mean, a lot of people who sit in that chair and who speak to me on my sporting life, their parents were either very athletically inclined themselves or incredibly supportive, not to say pushy. That's not, that wasn't the way it worked with you. No, I, I think that I was left to my own means. But um, you know, my, other, my my mother always said that uh, she always gave me bananas. She always takes the credit for <laughs> the, for the end product. That last ten well, meters pretty, and hundred meters. She's, I she's pretty involved in the in the actual product. I, to be I, fair I, to her. Well, absolutely. <laughs> my old man was only five feet six and a half. My mother was about five feet nine. You know, I think that combination was a, a good combination for the end product. Um, you know, it's, it's one of these things, you, you know. Um, I, I think, to be quite honest, I, I think that um, they obviously, they obviously the parents, and you you become what they were as, as a twosome, you know, but into one. And, and um, you know, you grow up, and, I, you know, I, I think deep down inside, I just had that inclination to be a winner, and uh, to want to win all the time, and, and in fact, you you you, you didn't set out in initially. I mean, uh, you leave school. You went to a secondary school. Let me get this right. Called Liberton High School. Yeah, and that's it. And yeah. um, you you did athletics. You were in the boys' brigade. But you left school at fifteen to become a, an apprentice engineer. Yeah, you're still an engineer today. Yeah, I'm still an engineer. Um, we'll talk about the posh engineering you do at the <laughs> well, University of Surrey, of Surrey later on. Um, but you didn't start out as a sprinter. It was other athletics endeavours for you, really. Was that fair or? Well, I, I did a lot of different things. I, I did uh, cross country. I did. Uh, a few other uh, things, but you know the love, the deep down love that I had was for for sprinting. But yes, I did. I was the Scottish Junior Triple Jump champion. I took up this, the the long jump. I joined the club, the hundred meters down the road from the Edinburgh Southern Harriers, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, you know, it was a great. Uh, I, you know, I think I think the I think that ingredient of all these things that were there and, and the, the school and so forth and the BBs, I think it was all an ingredient for the end product. Really. Uh, of course, I mean, long jumping and triple jumping, um, um, I know they're a bit technical, but really it's just sprinting where you have, a little bit, you have to stop yourself at the end. Yeah, but I mean, I was only capable of running 50 metres ah. full, full out, but um, probably probably 10, 9, 10, 8 maybe I for, can, that, for that little bit. I, I can I can reveal to people, because we've spoken about it, that uh, the question, of course, they'll want you're from Edinburgh, they'll want to, the answer is hearts. Um, and <laughs> and uh, last question of this section, <clears throat> did you have a sporting hero when you were growing up as a boy? I think um, it's difficult. I mean, Bruce Tollo, 
I mean, they reminded uh, me he ran with a barefoot, spike, yeah. yeah. I mean, marathon runner or distance no, no, he was, he was a distance runner. Distant and to run on the cinder tracks, it just and I actually met him in Zurich when I was running there. And I, you know, you, you just wondered, and I said, Did you ever hurt your feet? And he always hurt his feet, he's always, you know, there was always blood of some sort, he was telling me. But you know, I found that just you know, unbelievable. In 1976, you began concentrating on sprint events. I mean, this is an interesting the story because. In your mid-twenties, you suddenly decide to become a sprinter, and within four years, you're going to be Olympic champion. I don't want to jump ahead, but we all kind of know that's what, what's going to happen. It's an extraordinary story. Why did you decide, oh, right, I'm going to I'm going to become a sprinter then? To be quite honest, at that time, I was at a crossroads, whether I was going to continue with athletics or where I was going with athletics and my life. And um, uh, I had a friend uh, that we used to casually just meet up at Meadowbank and train. You know, he was That's a the big athletic stadium in, in, yep, in, in Edinburgh. In Edinburgh. And he was a sprinter. I was a long jump. I could do some sprinting with him for my long jump. So sure. it, was, it was sensible. And his name's Drew Hislop. Now, Drew was a banker. That didn't mean any. That's not a bad thing. I don't think in it those days that was okay. Wasn't it was okay it? then, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but Drew was he was a really good guy. Um, stocky. He was a bit, I think he was 5'10". Um, hopefully I'm not doing him an injustice at mm-hmm. the moment. But, um, you know, uh, he disappeared. He, he disappeared for a few months. And uh, I've told this story before, but he, he disappeared for a few months. And on a Saturday night, this Saturday afternoon, I should say, I'm watching BBC Sport and up comes the Cosford Games, the Cosford Indoor Games. And here, Drew was standing at the start and I said to Margaret oh he's wasted all that time and money going down there I said, he's, he's not going to do anything because you know there was there wasn't much between Drew and I mm-hmm. you know I could beat him sometimes and you weren't a specialist sprinter yeah I wasn't a specialist sprinter no so anyway he, he won the he won the heat I watched him running and he won the heat and I'm saying to myself that's not the Drew I, I, I uh, ran against that's he was he was stronger he was faster he was fitter he was f- more focused and everything was so disciplined. Everything was so compact and, you know, focused is probably the best word mm-hmm. for it. And I you thought, mean physically as well as mentally? But everything, yeah. everything, you know, because you could see it on the television. He was just, you know, he was a changed person. And I thought, what, what's going on here? You know, where, what, where has he been? Where has he gone? And um, so we sat and waited for the final. And eventually the final came and he was in the middle lanes. And I thought, he must have won his semi. And... Um, Gun goes and he wins, and I'm just, you know, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat, gobsmacked, and, and really, I thought, if it's done that for him, what could it do for me? If, if, what, what had he done? Well, he, well, what he done? He had gone to a professional group and and trained with his professional group. I mean, Drew, like myself, was a wee bit lost in respect to the focus and the commitment and and a, a regime, a training regime. So he went. Well, to be fair, you're, you're, I presume you're working at this time as well as uh, being a long jumper. You've got a job, I presume. Yeah, I was. I was working, but I mean, engineering. Did, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but it, it didn't. Uh, it wouldn't have inter- interfered. People, you know, people have got a job. I mean, most people have got jobs nowadays, and you know, you know, you do something to keep fit, or you know, I, I, I was attached to Edinburgh Southern in, in a big, in a big way, and so was Drew, and and we both ran for the club, and you know, so there was a big commitment there with the club. So here was a situation where. You know, one and one makes two. Drew's gone to this t- this group. I had to find out what he had done, where he'd gone, and blow me, it was at Meadow Bank. So it, it probably took me about forty-eight hours to find out and approach the coach and say, "Look, you know, I'd like to do, I'd like to join your group. I'm, I'm a long jumper. I'd like to get some speed from a long jump." 
And he said, well, you'll need to speak to the other guys. And I said, fine. Um, but he did make the quip, well, we'll see if you'll be a long jumper. You know, I think he made this um, uh, a sort of remark in the background. We'll see if you continue doing your long jump. Anyway, they all agreed. They were quite happy. I joined the group and we really got it stuck in. The, the regime was different from anybody else's. But I think for me, I think part of the big thing was that we had a group and the, we all wanted to be the best. We, we were all feeding off each other. So, you know, what I mean, what what changed? Because do you do, because uh, by the time I remember you sprinting, you're a very powerful physical being. Did you do more weights? What kind of, what changed for you when you what turned you into a great sprinter? Well, what happened was that their regime was completely different from what I did. And what I did was um, plyometrics, bounding, hopping, jumping, and yeah. so forth because of the long jump. And we did, I did hill runs and all the, the rest. I did weights and, you know, all the things that you would do for a long jump. And, but the sprinting was like, I'm not saying it was icing on, on the cake, but what you did was high repetitions, abdominal stuff. Um, you did, we did the speed ball, the punch, the, the boxer's punch ball. And it's just the way we, that we were taught and it being handed down over the years. Um, and, it's it's bloody hard, you know. After, after you're doing six times three minutes with a minute rest, so it's like the boxing, the boxing right. Room. And you, the intensity of hitting this ball, this little ball that's hanging on the board, is incredible. So, you know that for me, I, I you know it's it, it's um it's magnetic. You just get so focused on this, and when you see somebody doing it, you're thinking, you know, the power. When you see somebody doing this, hitting the speed ball, the power. And and just the 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 timing is just um, mesmerising, really. And when you see this, it is like that. And when I f saw it for the first time, I thought, "Is this part of the training?" Well, if it's done this for Drew, I'm going to do it, you know. And um, basically, it took me about it pr took me probably about three or four weeks to really get a good hand on hitting the speedball because that was important is being able to hit the speedball technical correctly but it was all about discipline it was all about eye hand coordination and your big toes are even moving in the balance of the as you hit this ball and it's still being used today um you mentioned margot um the lady you're married to um lots of people remember her part in the uh, in what we're coming up to in moscow screaming and shouting at the side of the track but of course she was an athlete in her own right uh, she's still very much one of our top athletics trainers today we'll get on to that she was a, a hurdles champion um did was she helping you as well at this stage? Well, yeah, Margot was um, <laughs> because I was doing athletics. She came back into athletics. Um, she was a, a great athlete, a good athlete at school, and uh, I think it, it. I think it sort of gave her parents a, a little bit of a, a positive factor uh, when she took it up again. And and she um, she did exceptionally well. I mean, she she went to the Commonwealth Games in seventy eight, and she she made the semi finals. I think. In both the the hundred, but not in the two hundred. You, as you say, you're in your mid twenties, and you're making the transition from um, club standard uh, runner to what becomes a top class sprinter. Did you have to make sacrifices? Was it hard? No, we both. I think, I think it was something so positive in life to take up and to to be involved with. And it was something that um, I wanted to do. I want, you know, I watched athletics. I watched, you know, all that sport over the years—the Commonwealth Games, the Olympics, and uh, you know, the Mary Ryan's of this world, the Ann Parkers of this world, the Lynn Davises, the Hemrys, and you know, you know, and and it's it's in the blood. I, I lived uh, 
as I said, overlooking a, a track 100 yards away, 100 metres away for 22 years. You know, it had to have some effect on me. And um, when this transformation came from long jump to, to sprinting in a different type of training, it was all discipline. It was high reps of press-ups, high reps of abdominal curls, and, you know, the, the squats as well, the high reps of squats, that was all part and parcel of the, the end product. And and really, I mean, you know, the, the, the tech, technical aspect on the track was probably the icing on the cake for the whole thing. And that gave me the edge. Um, it, it brought out the best competitive edge that I had as a person, as a, you know, as a human being. I'm sure it took, in your mind, it was taking you a, a, quite a long time, you know, getting it up to speed. But in actual fact, Progress is pretty quick, but in 1977, um, you win um, the Scottish Sprint title over 60 metres. In 1978, um, you win the UK, you double at the UK Championships, which are in Meadowbank. And in 1978, in, in a week, you twice break the British record, but helped by a man called Peter Radford from, well, I think it was like... It'd been it'd been it'd been there for eighteen years. Tell us about breaking the British record. I mean, I mean, I know, I know we're, we're moving on leaps and bounds here, but I think we need to get onto this. You do become a, a pretty brilliant sprinter. Yeah. Well, I think the main reason for that was that you know he was a seed, and I, I used to you know I did everything and and on God's earth to 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 be the best that I could be on that day. Every day I trained was, uh, you know, it was like an inspiration for me. Honestly, it was, I was so positive, uh, so committed. And in some ways I was lucky that uh, I, w I was free of injury. Um, I had been, uh, yeah, I think I always look at it that, you know, the, the years that you've lost in respect to being at the high level would come at a later, at later stage anyway. Um, but you got to remember that I had always been involved with the sport, mm -hmm. uh, you know. But okay, different level as you say. Um, to do what I did, um, as you say, in 1978, I think was extraordinary. I think that um, it, there was a lot of things going on, you know, following up with the coach and things like that that happened. But basically, um, you, you know, the running the 10:28 at Gateshead, equaling Peter Radford's British record, I, I didn't know where that came from. But the thing is, it wasn't going to stop me. What I mean is, I, you know, I, I just felt it wasn't right on that day to run that quick. Um, but there was. I don't think you. I don't think you get any choice in these things, well, Alan. You're either there or you're not. <laughs> well, James Sanford was in the race, and I think he won it. Um, thinking about you're making me think really deeply now. But James Sanford was the American champion, I think, and uh, he won that race, uh, and I was second, uh, I think. And um, you know, from there, I think it was two weeks later, I competed in the. I think it was the Scottish Championships, and uh, there was one or two things that egged me on, made me angry, gave me a wee bit of an edge. Um, and um, basically, the, uh, <laughs> that, that attitude helped me to a British record of 10-15, which really, you know, it was really just remarkable for me. And then you, it's, it's a miracle year for you, 1978. You then go to the Commonwealth Games in Edmonton in, in Canada. You're second in the 100 metres behind uh, one of the greats of the sport, Don Quarry, the uh, uh, Jamaican Olympic champion. Um, and you run 10-7 there, and then you win the 200 metres in a time of, uh, of 2012, and you're a Commonwealth champion. Well, in fact, <clears throat> Don won the 100 in 10.0... I think it was 10.03. You're right. I think I ran 10.05 or something. And uh, Hazley, 
Hazley Crawford. Hazley, yeah. who was the Olympic champion mm-hmm. from 76, um, he seemed to ease up five yards to go. And I just, you know, I realized that this was a, an opportunity for me to even do better. But we didn't really know. You, you, sometimes you don't know where you are at that at that stage in the race. And I just, you know, I just dipped for the line. Um, and I think I think he thought the race was over five yards before, and I did for the line. I got second, and I think it was ten oh five. I think I might be wrong, um, but the two hundred was um, it was a, it was a better opportunity. Don Quarry, he, he, I think he he had some uh, cramp in the in the the heats or the whatever it was. I'm I'm not quite sure about that. Mm-hmm. And he pulled out, and um, basically. I just took the the bull by the horns. Interestingly enough, I didn't use starting blocks at that time. I know. <laughs> now, the starter came up to me after. He says, Alan, he says, I'm the official starter. I started you in that last race. He says, I'm going to apologise because I started you, but I was watching you and you only in case you took a, a, a false Fly start. Because of course he he says, I do apologise for it because I, I realised that he had two other men with guns and he said, you got away spot on. He said, it was great. He said, I do apologise for doing that. And we shouldn't forget as well, though, uh, I think as a proud Scotsman, we shouldn't forget that Scotland also won the uh, the uh, the relay, the sprint That's relay. Right, the Amazing football, team. Football Yourself, um, Cameron Sharp, who, who was a, a top, top sprinter, Drew McMaster, who I remember very well, and David Jenkins, who was a fantastic runner too, but over the longer distance particularly. <laughs> Uh, you, 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 and you beat Trinidad and Tobago in Jamaica. In Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it was a situation where we all just uh, performed above, not not so much above ourselves, but we came out and we had the ability to do it. Um, it was just where we were going to end up. We knew, I, I thought we were always going to win a medal, but it was the changeovers. I mean, David was a 400 runner, but he was a, he was a great 200 meter runner. Um, in a way, he was a black horse. He wasn't the pure sprinter. But um, I know that he did his his best in the first leg. I took the baton off of him. I passed it on to. You did the second leg. It's the longest, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, they keep telling it's, it's 110 meters, isn't it's it? A, it's a boring leg. It's a straight, yeah. straight line. And no glory. I, but I preferred to run on the bend on the first leg. And and uh, you know when I was told no, you run the second leg. And and after that time, I always did run the second leg. But no, I I enjoyed it. it, it I was part of four people. I was putting my 25 percent in. A hundred percent. Do you like relays? Because athletics is a tremendously focused individual sport, and here you're suddenly in a team competition. Yeah, I think you know. My thought at the time was, look, I've got, I've got my gold, and I've got a silver for for the two events mm-hmm. I've done. I'll do everything I can and see see what for these guys and see what we get. You know, um, they hadn't got anything up to that point, and and it wasn't it wasn't me. It was it's four men, and um, we all we all did a hundred percent. And uh, watching Drew coming through the line in first place, it, you know, it was just magic. And and to watch the four of us on the on the television afterwards, mm-hmm. uh, doing a wee lappy on her, coming to the home straight, that you know, that was a magic moment. And very passionate, you know, Scots are very passionate, as you know, and and very proud. And I was really pleased. Are you an emotional guy, Alan? Very emotional inside. Trying not to, you know, I'm I'm very soft inside, to be honest. But when somebody puts a red rag in front of my nose uh, or, or a starter pistol, I tend to jump. So. Did, did you cry when you won the relay? No, I didn't cry. I thought, thank God it's all over. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was the impact of, I mean, first of all, two questions really. So you come back from Canada with your two gold medals and a silver. Did it change your life? And were you surprised at the progress you'd made for having made that decision two and a half years earlier? Right, 
I'm going to become a, a proper sprinter. It, it did change my life. The problem was that, you know, in comparison today, it's, it's a completely different ball game. Um, the commercialism nowadays, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big difference. But everything was different. You know, the whole life, my whole life then ch- changed from being a, a sort of um, a nobody, if you like, into somebody that was uh, very high up in world-class uh, sport. Okay, well, listen... We'll come on and talk about the build-up very soon to the 1980, and we're talking about 79 as well, but also about the build-up to the Olympics in 1980, which I think was one of the most extraordinary periods I can remember in British sporting history when the politicians were trying to stop athletes doing what they do. Before that, though, let's get a a flavour of what you were doing, Alan, at this stage. John Wilson was your training partner in the run-up to the Olympics in 1980. I know he's a a great chum of yours as well, and he joins us on the line now. Hello, John. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Say hello to Alan. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, John. Nice, <laughs> nice to hear you. <laughs> John, Alan, Alan yeah. is very um, uh, focused and matter-of-fact when he talks about his training and preparing to become what he was, um, a great sprinter. What are your recollections of working with Alan Wells? Um, well, tremendous, as you say, tremendous um, dedication, but probably more important, fantastic natural ability to achieve what he achieved, uh, even training as hard as anyone could. Um, required amazing ability, which he had, and obviously fantastic application as well. Well, talk to me about the ability, because the application, Alan, you know, we, we, there was films made about how dedicated, there was a documentary made about yeah, how, yeah. Alan yeah. working like a maniac. Talk to me about the natural ability. I mean, he's in front of me now, a gentleman of a certain <laughs> yeah. age. He's still a very, very muscular and lean-looking figure. Um, what, yeah. what do you mean by natural ability? Well, I mean, for anyone to win the Olympic 100 metres, you know, it's a kind of um, ultimate sporting accolade. And for anyone to do that, they must have tremendous ability. I mean, Usain Bolt's quite fast, but he's got the whole of um, Jamaica uh, behind him. He's also got a chap called Johan Blake as his training partner. Alan just had me, you know. Johan Blake could be described as perhaps the second greatest uh, sprinter of all, well, maybe maybe the third greatest between, behind Alan and the great man himself. Um, but yeah, he, he just, Alan just has tremendous um, um, so we used to call it elastic strength. This is boundiness. He just his side length was just massive. It's just so bouncy and so quick as well. It was quite incredible. What um, um, was it important to have a regular training partner, Alan, like John? John was the thing about John was he was very consistent, very competitive, and that that was the gauge. If I could beat John every day, um, <laughs> he was he was that good. He was the hair, and 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 basically there was a handicap, and 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 having this handicap push me all the time and of course it pushed John I think it was through fear that John was running um, but no I think that uh, I think that that was where the the balance of the competitive edge came as well I mean to have that competition every day was was very important and I think I think that gets the best out of you as well it wasn't just I mean you know it wasn't an armchair watching the telly athlete you're talking to you know you're talking to somebody that as John says really trained hard and yeah and it, it's, it's partly down to his uh, help that I, you know I got me there John was there ever a moment when you could hear his footsteps those elastic bounds behind you and you thought oh my god this fella's going to be the best sprinter in the world yeah, no, I mean, you, you could see that in the determination, and uh, although it's, you know, it's incredible to think about it, I mean, I was just amazed to be part of it, but, you know, to, to achieve that's quite an incredible thing. But, yeah, you could see that when I'm running, that uh, you had the potential to, to, to do whatever you wanted, you know? Well, listen, John, I'm sorry but it's been so brief, but we've got so much to get through. Thank you so much for joining us here on TalkSport. 
Thanks. Thanks again, John. That's John Wilson, uh, Alan's training partner, who, of course, featured in the film that was made about you in 1979, No Easy Way, which showed the incredible dedication and depth of human endurance you were putting yourself through in order to become a better and better sprinter. Um, Of course, you you were still running fantastically well, won the European Cup in Turin in 79, all this building up to the Olympic Games in Moscow. And there was a time in the build-up to the Games, Alan, where it looked like your decision, your dedication, your natural talent and the devotion that we saw in that film um, was going to be wasted because the Soviet Union, who were hosting the Games in Moscow, had invaded Afghanistan and politicians around the world, Americans and uh, British politicians, Thatcher and her gang, had decided that you shouldn't go, you should boycott the Games. And they were, for the six months running up to the Games, there was incredible doubt about whether or not you'd all go. What kind of pressure? What did you feel when all that was going on? Well, it, it was a big... Uh, I mean, basically, IAAF um, or the IOC left it up to the, the BBA at the time or the, 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 BOA, the BOAB um, to make up that decision. But then it was the, um, the BOA that decided that... They, they said, look, we'll leave it up to the associations. The association said, we'll leave it up to the individual athletes. And when that came through, I think in a way we were relieved, but we still got that that thing behind our minds that, you know, there are people being killed in Afghanistan, you know, the Russians are in there, you know, what's going on? It's a bit of a mix. Will it make any difference if I don't go to Olympics? Sure, that's the that's the issue, isn't it? And, and, and really, to be honest, I had to say, you know, that guy that's going to shoot someday is not going to stop because Alan Wells is not going, you Who know? Did you, talk to? did you talk to Daley Thompson, Steve uh, Steve. Ovec, who, no. who did you get to talk to? Or were you all very isolated? I, I think all these names that you've mentioned had the same attitude. Until somebody says we're not going, we'll carry on 100% with fitness. Um, and it was it was really, again, people might think it's selfish attitude, but at the end of the day, really, it would have been politically orientated and it would have been a wrong decision. Um, it would have been the first time a British team would have been taken out on Olympics, as far as I know. Um, so in a way, we were in a free world and we were allowed to do what we were allowed to do in that Which free world. Which is the world. very issue that I think, you know, the, the war in Afghanistan, it was, you know, it, we do live in a free world and athletes must be able to travel. Did the political shenanigans affect your build-up? Tell me about the injury you suffered and how serious that was. And, of course, you now have the added uh, problem that you're being forced to use spikes for the first time. It becomes an eye. So, in order, the politics, your injury, and the spikes. Well, in this fact, is not a perfect build-up, is no, it? No, no, no. In fact, uh, I was wondering if uh, I should have been at the Olympics in the first place. But the, the the first thing was the starting blocks. And it was such a big... Did I just call them building blocks? Yes, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what you said. <laughs> what the hell was I talking about um, but yeah, the starting blocks was a, an issue. It was a big uh, press thing, and I think they were more worried about it than I was. But I realised that I had to sort that out, and I just I had been practicing at the blocks for a while anyway, and and I was focused on using the blocks. And the IWF, um, they had come along and said that everybody has to use blocks and make it fair across the board, which was fine. I I, I totally understood that. Um, so that was put to bed. The press were a bit worried that I hadn't done enough, and so I, I didn't have a problem with the starting blocks. And um, you know, I, you know, these things you can use very quickly. Um, the second thing was the 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 boycott, which we've spoken about. We mentioned the the problems with dealing with that, and um, the the most the biggest problem is something sometimes you can't deal with, and that's an injury. And I got this. I'd done some really fast, hard uh, starts at, at uh, Meadowbank um, with a group, 
In fact, it was it was standing fifties. It's what we call full out standing fifties, and it's all handicapped. And uh, I felt something in the back, probably in the fourth run of the first set, and I thought, hmm, that's different. That was that was unusual. You don't need different, do you? I, well, it, it it wasn't a pain. It was just a funny feeling, but it it felt deep down, and uh, I thought, hmm, it's not too bad. You know, it's it's not a problem, and so. It was fine. I got to the second set and it happened again, but it wasn't as as as, as prominent. And you know, you know, basically, it it was fine. You know, I could run with it. It wasn't a pain. It was it was a, a feeling, and that was it. Um, and I never thought any more of it. I went home, had a shower, dinner, and whatever. I woke up in the morning, and I couldn't move. The back was in spasm. Well, I'm calling it spasm. It was just unbelievable. I thought it was like a steamroller sitting on my back. I couldn't move. And the only way I could get out of the bed was to roll out sideways, drop my legs down on the floor, and then onto my knees, and then bend up my, my back slowly because everything was so tight. And um, I decided to go over the park, which was surreal because it was a beautiful day. People were having picnics. And I'm I'm jogging and I'm I'm, I'm jogging I'm, I'm I'm literally a wee bit more than walking, and the sweat's pouring down my back. The intense it, it, it was so tight, it was just the spasm. It just wouldn't go away. And I said to Margot, I'll, I'll try and do this to see if it'll go away. And I came back and I, I was desperate. I phoned up the doctor that was involved with the British team. Um, he was the hips doctor, Doctor Leddingham, and I, I phoned him up, and and the doc said to me, "Hey, yeah, pull the other one. It's got bells on it, you know." And I thought, "Well, I will." And he immediately said, "Look, I'll get back to you in twenty minutes." He phoned me back in twenty minutes. He says, "Get yourself along to the Western General, see a, a girl called Sue Mears, and she'll look after you." And the time that he had spoken to her, she had spoken to specialists in Dundee. Uh, medical hospital and they had given her some advice and you know she had she had got the information from what the doctor she diagnosed you over the phone second well, hand it, yeah that this is what i couldn't understand either but you know maybe that's maybe maybe i got the right people maybe everybody was the right people Luck, at the right fate, time all those things absolutely so i went along to the western general and it was sumir she she saw me i got four treatments a day i didn't train for that that week, I got four treatments a day, back and forth to the unit, to the the hospital. Do you know what what actually happened to your back hand? Do you know? It was the disc. Um, basically, the disc had no no collapse completely, but you've got you've got a, a sort of fluid in the middle, and it had been pushed to the edge in two ways. No point in showing me this when your hands are. Well, right I, I can't. Yeah. Dis- yeah. I'm not medically orientated, but <laughs> but it had been pushed to the back on both sides, and. Uh, um, you know, I suppose that's how I look at it now. That's how I describe it. And she gave me ice manipulation and ultrasonics four times a day for that that week. And I was going demented. It was harder than training um, because I was just getting back home and I had about an hour or two hours and then I had to go back again. Now, the second week, she said, I only want to see you twice, twice a day. And that was a relief. And the day before I left for Moscow, of course, we went in late I think I was only there three days before because of the boycott. We missed the opening ceremony. There was only uh, uh, Mike Palmer, I think it was. He he held the flag as an official for the whole British team, and it was just shown our disgust in the Russians being in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. We 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 started boycott the opening yeah. ceremony. Yes. So um, the day before I left to go to Moscow, um, I did two ten- tentative starts. And um, the second one was maybe about 85%. I said, that's fine. It's okay. 
I'm going. And uh, I got to Moscow. Um, I think it was maybe the next day. I said, right, I said to Margaret, I'm going to do six starts. And there was two other British coaches there. Um, I got to the fourth one, probably about 90%. And then the fifth one, probably 95%. I said, I'm leaving it. That's it. She said, I said to her, what do you think? She said, the best starts you've ever done. And at that time, Manea, I didn't know, but Manea, this was the village track, and Manea had been watching from the other side of the track. I, I, I still didn't see him to this day. And uh, whether that psyched him out because it affected, well, you know, whether it affected his 100 metres, but he only got to the second round. But, um, you know, for Margaret to, it, you know, I was just so positive. And having lost that two weeks, it maybe was a godsend that, you know, I needed the rest, I needed to... But there are many, many athletic endeavours where you do the intensive training and then you have a downtime for the body to gather itself again. And maybe you've got some, by some bizarre way, you've got some of that. I don't know. Well, the thing is, I was going to have a downtime. That was part of the build-up. And you, 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 you've done the, the main part of the training. It was just unfortunate that this part, two and a half weeks, was the standing 50s and it actually activated the, the disc as it did. So I'm, I'm sitting here still with that same problem. I had an operation, and, and I, well, I thought it was 92, it was 97, just to ease it. So they, they, they took part of the middle of the disc out. The, misc is, the, the disc, as far as I'm, I'm concerned, or what I was told, was parallel in shape and black. And um, it was seen on an MRI scan, and, and the guy that explained it, the consultant explained it, he says, I've never seen anything like it. You expect some, some uh, deterioration in the ones above and below, but you are perfect so you know obviously it's a weakness and um, fortunately enough I got over that weakness What did you find when you got to Moscow what was the atmosphere like at the around the Olympic Games It's certainly different to any experience I ever had before as we flew in the British team were in the you know were obviously on a British Airways flight it was only once a week these flights go in and um I remember we were into the Russian airspace and I'm looking at the win the, the window just behind the wing and I'm looking at the end of the wing and all of a sudden this MIG, whatever it was, appeared, fighter plane. Fighter plane. Yeah. And then somebody shouts, there's another one on the other side. And I thought, God, we've had it. You, you know, they're gonna stop us actually landing. But I think I think hopefully it was just um it was just giving us a sort of red carpet leading to Moscow. But, uh, you know, I think it frightened everybody because the plane just went so quiet inside. But Moscow, um, very cold and in, 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 in people's faces, you know, Russian people's faces. It was very cold. I felt sorry for them in that sense. Um, the accommodation was phenomenal. Uh, in, in respect to for Russia, it was phenomenal. Um, the uh, of course I shared with uh, Mr. Coe, Seb Coe. Did you? Yeah, Seb and I we shared. Did you get on? Yeah, yeah, no, no, it was no problem. I mean, we, we, we both had the same intentions. We both He's had the done, same focus. Done quite well for himself over the years, hasn't he? Uh, just a wee bit, just a wee bit. Um, but Seb, you know, I have great... Let me ask you a question. Now that he's Lord Cohen, virtually King of England, could you pick the phone up to him? Will he, will he take your call, Alan? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Seb, Seb would help anybody, I'm sure, but I've never, I've never had that reason to do that. So, um, uh, you know, but, um, you know, <laughs> I remember Daly, Daly had seen, he had gone in next door to Seb and he says, and this was after the 800, and of course Seb had won the mm -hmm. silver, and Daly had said to him, he looked at his window and he said, it looks a bit silver out there, doesn't it? <laughs> the thing is, what I didn't realise, he came through to my room and he, he, he looked out the window and he said, it's looking a bit gold out there, isn't it? <laughs> but it was so funny. But um, I remember Seb's uh, father and Seb came in the next day and uh, uh, there was these card tables in the middle of the room 
a two feet by two feet, the blaze, the green blaze. And it just so happened my medal was sitting in the middle in its case, closed. And Seb came in and uh, his father congratulated me and said, that well done, it was great and so forth. And um, he said, do you mind if I have a look at the medal? I said, no, have a look at it, it's no problem. Uh, he picked up the medal, opened the case, and uh, he said, um, this is the one we should have won. Oh. But the thing is that what he was saying was that, you know, he was he was willing his son to win the gold medal. And, you know, if you get it wrong, you get it wrong. I mean... It happened to me a few days later. Well, let's talk about uh, then. The, so it's four races, um, the Olympic program at that time for the 100 metres. Um, the heat, um, the, the first heat was on the 24th of July. Uh, you finished first in uh, in uh, 10.35 seconds. The quarter final, think about this. Pietro Manea was in it, the world 200 metres world record holder. Um, and Hazley Crawford, it was an amazingly, uh, the Trinidadian, yeah. uh, big, strong, brilliant Trinidadian. Big lineup for the quarterfinal. Funny thing was that uh, we, we were the, there was two heats together, and I thought Hazley was in the other heat. And he come up to me. He says, uh, "Alan, what size do you take?" And I says, "Size nine. He says, "Can I borrow your spikes?" He says, "I've forgotten mine." I says, "Hazley, we're in the same heat." <laughs> and I felt, I, you know, I felt so frustrated for him. I, d- I didn't know what to say. I said, "Look, I would give you the spikes." So you could run, but I said we're, we're running against each other, you know. Also, oh, you needed those spikes because you ran a British record in that in that quarter final. Well, the thing the thing is, ten eleven. Yeah, ten eleven. I did. Yeah. The thing the thing was that I said to Margaret, I'm going to go out there, and the back is either going to be good or it's going to be bad. And from the first heat, I won that. I wanted to win that, stamp my authority, and it beat Don Quarry. And the second heat, as you say, it was full of. It had Eugen Ray, it had Hazley Crawford, Pietro Manet, myself, and there was um, there was somebody else there. So it was five. Five people going for three places. Petrov, Schlegel, they were all that that's right. Race, yeah. So I said to Margaret, I'm just going to run it to win it. And that's what I did. And probably the last five yards that I eased up and knowing that there was nobody else there. And when they said it was 10-11, I thought, God, this is just going to give me more hassle. I'm going to be the favourite, the and that's a very negative way to look at a British well, record. No, 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 no. I was looking at, you know, forget the race. It's what's going to happen from that. And I said to Margaret, look, we'll go at the side door, which was away at the other end of the, the stadium, and nobody will be there. So it goes out there, and blow me, there was a newscaster with a f- film crew, and he couldn't believe it. It made his day. And he said, Alan, oh, no, please, Alan. He says, you need to speak to us. And I thought, this is not what I wanted. I wanted to contain the energy. I wanted to con- contain the focus. And basically, I said, okay, I'll do this. And he said, oh, you must feel that you're going to win this now. I thought, no. I says, I'm only as good as my last race, but in real terms, I've got bigger things to conquer. And and basically, that's not the answer. That that's not the question I wanted to answer, because it was always the question that was going to be asked of me. Um, you mentioned Hasty Crawford there. I remember as a big, mm. strong, rather intimidating Trinidadian sprinter. And you were telling me a story earlier off air. I'd like you to repeat it now for the listeners <laughs> um, about the shenanigans <laughs> that go on. With, we all know about the macho posturing and the build-up and the uh, and it's like a heavy, it's like boxers, isn't it? Mm. Uh, with between sprinters, tell us about the story you were talking about you and Hazley Crawford. Well, Hazley Hazley's got the biggest, softest heart you'll ever find in anybody. He's a lovely guy, but um, never haven't met him before. We in in '78 just getting to the Commonwealth Games in Edmonton, uh, Scotland, went a few days earlier, and we're in having lunch with the Scottish some of the Scottish team. And this guy's, this guy's pointing over from a distance in the restaurant. In the restaurant, yeah. And um, he'd obviously finished his lunch, and he, he was saying, 
I'm going to whop you, man. I'm going to get you. Wait till I get you out there. And he was going on like this. And um, and I turned around behind me thinking he was talking to somebody behind me. And then I looked at him. I thought, bloody hell, that's Hazley Crawford. He's... But you see, what he did for me was he gave me a bit of a lift then. But um, because he gave me more respect, he, he thought I was one of his big uh, oppositions. Yeah, anyway, clearly, yeah. In the second round of the hundred, and he was given this this all the time. He was given the point and the finger as we were leading into the competition, and he was also doing it to uh, Don Quarry big time. And um, so, I've come off from doing the second round heat, and Hazley's sitting there getting changed with probably a dozen athletes around him. So I'm walking up the concrete on my spikes and. And he starts to give it, I'm going to whop you, wait till I get you out there and so forth. In front and of I'm everyone. And I'm thinking, oh, God, here we go again. You know, what am I going to do? And you've you know? got to walk past him to I've get got, to I've your got kit. To, I've got to walk past <laughs> him to get to my kit. So I'm, he's sitting down. I get to him, I turn, and I slapped his face. <laughs> very gently, mind you, very gently. Like Eric Morecambe. Like the Eric Morecambe slap. <laughs> And I thought, God, I, I sort of got this sort of heat came over me thinking I've done the wrong thing. And, you know, he just shocked. He just, he just looked at me. His mouth was open. His eyes were open. And he, he, said, he just said, you saw that. Everybody saw that, didn't they? He, 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 you know, he I, assaulted, I assaulted them. Yeah, I assaulted them. And they were splitting themselves. Everybody was splitting themselves laughing. And that stopped him from doing it again. So that was a good thing. But he did have too much respect for me in that way. What do you remember about the semi-final? Because, of course, they did the semi-final the final the same day, weren't they? Well, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, the semi-final uh, was a bit strange because the second round was the, the race to make the final, in a sense, because it took out so many good runners. Um, Which Mania, is one, of course, as we said, in a, in a British, in a British record, record. Yeah, and, of course, it took Mania out. But um, the semi-final, it was just a case of saying, right, you know, I'm going out and I'm going to win that. I've got to go out and just win it, you know. And I say that, I'm saying that to Margot and nobody else, of course, but... Mm. Um, so I did that and it was very comfortable. It wasn't a fast time. I think conditions are relevant relevant Blust, to blustery and you won in in ten twenty seven, so you a jog for you. Uh, well, yeah, but easy for me it, to say. <laughs> it wasn't it's not you try it today. <laughs> um oh, I'm, so, down, I'm down I'm in the mid mid ten sixties now. Yeah, I was I mean, gonna yeah, say yeah, probably yeah, ten six yeah, for you. Yeah. Six, you're, yeah. look, you're looking about ten six, yeah. but what distance are we talking about? <laughs> well the, the engineer just said ten minutes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the thing is that we um Approaching the hundred in the evening, and um, the what, did you, what did you do between the two races, Alan? Because it is, it is an extraordinarily difficult period, I'm sure. Well, just going back, resting, having lunch, and and reading. I was reading uh, Forty Years of Murder and uh, the Black Museum. I think that's in London. These are these Pride. are these are dark things to be reading. They are, Alan. but it it was uh, I, I, what I did was I had to think to take my mind off this uh this situation and it was these were the only things you know how how much worse could you read how you know what else could you read that was going to make it you know more distracting you know the final itself as you say the americans who will come on to much later in the program the americans who might have been rivals have boycotted the games pietra Menea has failed to make the final so i guess you were favourite, whether you liked it or not. And who would have been your big rival? The Cuban, Sil yeah, Silvio Sil Leonard. Yeah, Silvio Leonard had, uh, the year before, had become the, fast, the third fastest human on God's earth. And he was always the guy that I was focused on. Um, you know, at this point, it was getting more serious as, as we're building up to the final. And um, he had won his semi-final. And, and basically, it was a two-horse race. Um, 
Unfortunately, he had lane one and I had lane eight. Because in the, in this particular Olympics, they didn't use your times. It was a draw, wasn't it, for the for the lanes? That right? I, I'm not sure to I this day. I'm I am. not sure, but yeah, I think okay. it, was a, it was a draw. It was you an open were draw, and you, you, so you were seven lanes away from your immediate rival. It was. It was difficult. Um, the thing is, that, you know, in approaching the in approaching that final, it was quite difficult. We all have to report, and we were all there, and the and the Russians were sticklers for timing and so forth, and they were great, and. We we got into the it's a it's a, a sort of pot a pound that we sat in for ten minutes or so before we went out and there's a Russian comes in jumps over the fence at five past the time and there was a big hoo ha in Russian um, he only had his underpants on and his socks and he had this trickle of blood coming from his backside um, his gluteus muscles uh-huh. um, and I thought this guy's playing the psychological job. You know, visually, he was actually, and this I think it was a del- deliberate, just whatever it was, it was it was it was distracting to other people, because Vornan came up to me and he said, "You see that? You see that?" I said, Mar- "Marian, I said, just don't this let is the him Russian be- sprinter." No, the, no yeah. this was the Polish uh, sorry, sprinter. Vornan, yeah. Okay. Vornan was the, he's the second or third fastest white man yeah. on earth as we speak, and um, he said, uh, "He said, you see that?" And I said, "I, I do see it, Marian, but Marian." focus on your event make sure he doesn't beat you and he goes off and I'm thinking wait a minute I've just given him some I've given him some help there but anyway so we we, we then we then walk out and I was last to go out I had the I had my red white and blue hat on and I watched every one of them trip over this um, television cables big television cables because we had to go through a curtain and so forth and um I thought to myself, I'm, I'm psyching do I trip over this because otherwise I, I might not be focused enough? Anyway, I didn't trip over it. I think that they just maybe didn't see it. But we got out there and, you know, the atmosphere is phenomenal. There was a cheer in the background that I was aware of at some stage. Victor Saniev, the three times Olympic, uh, Russian Olympic triple jumper, was trying to win his fourth. Alan, the great thing about the 100 metres is it happens, in your case, not mine, uh, thanks very much, engineer, in your case, very, very quickly. It was the great, it was the most important lunge of your life. Um, I know there's a long wait after as well. We were sorting out the photograph, but you were the champion. Let, let's let's enjoy the moment now with somebody who you've already said has been so influential in your, in your career. <coughs> Nobody will forget her part in that final either, anyone who saw it on the television. So let's say we're joined by your, your wife, and these days, of course, still very much one of our top coaches, Margot Wells. Hello, Margot. Hello, how are you? Very good. You might, I suppose you said hello to Alan already once today, but you might as well say hello again. <laughs> hello, dear. Uh, yes, nice to hear you again. Margot, Margo, you'll forgive me for saying, as much as I remember Alan's powerful, muscular physique pounding his way down that track and that dip for the line, the image of you, your face contorted with excitement, screaming at him, will also live with me to the day I die. Tell us about your memories of that final. Oh, I don't know if my face was contorted with excitement. It was more fear, I think, than anything else. Um, to be honest, I really didn't want to watch. Um, I could have quite happily gone and sat in the toilet and come back when the result was finished, but I knew I had to watch. Um, and it's quite a strange feeling because you're powerless. There's nothing you can do. I was trying to focus as much as I could on Alan's lane, um, what I thought I was doing, I don't know, but I thought, well, at least I'm doing something. Um, and it's quite weird because you actually don't want the race to start in some ways because once the race starts, there has to be a conclusion. Yeah. 
as long as the race doesn't start, you've still got a chance of winning. And it's on one hand, you think, oh, just get this race going so we know what's going to happen. On the other hand, you think, no, don't, no, don't, because, you know, we'd lived this moment for six months, probably, um, independently, together, and now we were actually going to find out whether all the hard work, all the sacrifices, everything had come together. And it was, to me, it was a, a very private moment. I was actually shocked that when I saw the footage that somebody had actually taken pictures of me when I was totally unaware of what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was embarrassing the next day, so you can imagine what it's like, you know, this, still people talk about it, well, still people see it now. And, well, you, should, you shouldn't be embarrassed, Mark. I, I, think, I think in many ways it, it showed that, uh, that for, for, for a person crossing the line to win an Olympic title, there's more to it than just one person. Clearly you'd been involved, we've heard from John, his training partner as well. There's, there's more to it than that. Um, how how agonising was the wait? Never mind for Alan on the track, but for you, uh, waiting for the, to find the result of what was a very, very close call with a photograph, Margot? My only concern was he'd gone off in a lap of honour and I kept thinking, oh my goodness, what if he hasn't won? Um, and even, like, I knew that Wells was shorter than Leonard, so... If the short name came up first, he'd won. If the long name had come up um, first, he hadn't won. But I was very privileged. I had run up to the BBC cameras and the uh, David Coleman showed me replay after replay after replay. And I thought, well, that shows he's won. And, just, you know, the, um, and I was just praying that that was you know, the outcome. Well, it was. Um, so you still, how, how often do you think about that day, Margot? Um... It's quite funny because it's almost like it happened so long ago that it was a part of your life that, and you know that we, I know I lived it, I know we did it, but um, you know when the Olympics come up, obviously you think, oh, I remember what we were doing before the heat, before the semi-final. So, but people talk about it quite a lot, to be honest. So, Margot, it's quite nice. Our time is pressing, but I will. I, 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 I did tell Alan I will. I must say congratulations to you. I know you're still training a lot of top athletes, particularly members of the English rugby team. And despite the disappointment of that result for England in Cardiff, I thought Mike Brown was far and away England's best player in the tournament. I know you've had a great deal of to, to do with these days. I do have, and he's you know he's a gem to work with. He tries really, really hard, and you know he takes on board everything you say to him. You know, he, it's a pleasure for me to watch him play, to be honest. And um, you know, but thank you for your kind comments. I'll pass them on to him. Margot, thank you very much indeed. That's Margot Wells, the national. I was just talking about very briefly before we get on to two hundred metres, where I thought you might be going to. You must have thought you might double up as well. Um, you didn't. There was no Union Jack and no uh, God Save the Queen because, of course, the government were, were, were sulking because you'd all gone over there. So you had an Olympic anthem and an Olympic flag. Did that take any of the glory away from you? For you, do you think? Um, no, really. No. You know, I'm sitting. I'm not literally sitting here with a gold medal in my neck. But yeah, I've, I've got the Olympic gold medal. I wish it were. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think to stand on the rostrum and receive the gold medal was uh, is probably the main part of that. Do but you remember yeah. who gave it to you? It was an Af- African oh, official. Okay. Because sometimes you, know, you get a great legend comes out and gives it over. Oh, okay. I, it, yeah. it could have been, but yeah. it, it, it was overweight. That's yeah. all I could say. Yeah. Very fashionable. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so then, we, we, did you think you were going to do the double? Because you, 200 metres was coming up pretty quickly, or a pretty good runner at 200 metres as well? Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there was one guy called Mania who was the the problem. Who died, of course, thing. at the top yeah. of the show. He died. What was it? Ten days ago. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Very recently. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, 
he was a great sprinter and and you know the other seven guys didn't matter how bad they were or how good they were i respected them 100 percent and um Manea hadn't run the he hadn't run the two the semi in the final of the hundred, and I was really quite tired. I was I was only getting four or five five hours sleep during that. I just don't know what was the semi conscious was playing games on me, and you um, had one day off before the two hundred, and Manea came out. He ran twenty point five, and people were saying he's going to win, and I ran twenty point nine because I, you know I, I was containing the energy, mm-hmm. and um, I thought. Right, so we've got another. We had another day after the second round, so I decided that I'd run twenty point five, which I did, and of course Manea confirmed his his running by doing the same. Um, so, so there's two guys that were really, again, I mean you had Don Quarry and you had Leonard, and uh, you can't ignore these guys. Um, so really, I just went through the motions in the semi final. I can't even remember the semi final to be honest. Um, but when it came to the final, the two hundred. And they gave me lane seven and Manea lane eight. I thought, that's good. We're halfway there. I can see he is, I, th- I thought he was running well. And, I, I, you know, I was just focused on because so many people had said he was going to win the final. And um, in the first in, in the first uh, stage going off, uh, it was a false start. And we, we came back and I, I'm walking back and I thought, this is the only chance I'll ever have of winning two gold medals, two Olympic gold medals. And... Um, I sort of got myself together a wee bit. I was very, very tired, I've got to say. And um, the gun went off, and I, I, I just thought, I'm just going to run this race my way, the way I've always run it, from the gun. And um, came off the bend. And what people must realise that Manea attacked, there's a tactic, for, believe it or not, for the 200. And what he does is he builds up from the gun and uh, or from the start and and when i came off the the bend it was probably two yards and um i thought i need to get as far in front of him as as i could and i thought when i saw it back again i thought god that was enough but but he was he was full of energy he hadn't run the psychological and the physical drain on that semi in the final and the hundred he hadn't gone through that so i reckon that was possibly the difference and he came back and he Pick me on the on the on the line. He did ease up actually, possibly two or three yards before it, and it gave me it gave me some sort of impetus to keep going and and you know reach for the the line. It was very close, and you got the silver. In in later years, um, Pietro uh, admitted that he'd taken human growth hormone in the run the race. Now it wasn't outlawed then. I must make that point. Um, were you ever tempted to go in for all, all the sort of pharmaceuticals and stuff? <sighs> I, I really didn't know enough about these things. I didn't sort of go into them. I didn't think about them. Um, it, it was a case of just, you know, get the training, focus on the the normal things that you can do to enhance your performance. And, and basically, that's what I did. Um, you know, if he came out and said that, I think it probably gave him an edge. I, I think it probably did. Yeah. Does that, does that make you feel bitter? <sighs> Well, if you, if you look at it, as you say, it was legal, possibly not on the banned list. But from what we know now, it, it probably does give you a, an advantage. I, I, wrote, I spoke recently to both Jessica Ennis and Greg Rutherford, clang name dropping, but I did. And they are still, months after the Olympic Games, admittedly it was a home Olympic Games, bewildered by the effect that the <coughs> that has had on their lives. They are overwhelmed with commercial offers, with people trying to get hold of them and all the rest of it. What was it like for you um, back in 1980 <laughs> after you won your gold medal? Uh, when I was flying up to Scotland, having come off the plane and stayed overnight in London, um, 
uh, because we've been, I think we came back too late. And um, the next morning uh, before the flight at Heathrow, uh, the, the million, I think it was the million pound athlete, you know, um, I, I think it was a fallacy, really. It was just uh, fictitious. I think it was just, um, I, I suppose in some ways it could have been, um, it wasn't as commercial in them days. We were still amateur athletes, believe it or not. And therefore, it was a, it was a silly thing to say, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I'm richer for winning the gold medal in any in every way, to yeah. be honest. So it it doesn't matter. There were five thousand people at the airport. There were you, in, in Edinburgh. Yeah. I, I couldn't believe it. Um, we had the open top bus. Uh, there was four or five thousand people, as you say, in the airport. The the roads uh, on the Glasgow main road uh, into Edinburgh on the other side was stopped. People were on top of the cars, and what was what was what was more impressive is the fact it was it was actually raining, drizzly rain, and actually, people in Scotland in the summer. Well, it 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 obviously affected everybody in that way, and and you know, my arms were killing me by the time I got along Princess Street, and people were out with the the pints from the hotels and things, and uh, sitting on the wall, and you know, it was a very enjoyable and and um, you know, it, it was a very memorable occasion, one that uh, you know it, it will stay with me till the end. The important thing that happened then, and you, you could almost, it's, it's surreal to say there was something more important than the Olympic Games, but I think there was. And it was this that because of the boycott, it was going to hang over your head all the time, but the Americans weren't there. Somebody had the bright idea of bringing the best <laughs> American sprinters to it, to Germany, actually to Koblenz, um, three, or four weeks, three weeks after the Olympic Games. Uh, it was something, three, yeah. yeah, three weeks, yeah. And they had. What were the eight fastest men in the world then on the track? Yeah, they were, everybody in, was there in, in ready for 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 a race. Tell us about the build up to that race and what do you remember about it? And well, and the, what happened? The day after I got back, I, I was on I was on the I was up in the park doing some run throughs and just getting away from the hubbub and get my brain thinking back to back to earth again. And um, I'd finished it, and a young lady came over, and uh, she came. There was nobody else in the field, and I thought, where is she going? She came towards me. And she said, Alan. Would you sign this? And I think it was a pound note. And uh, as I was signing it, there was a chap walking past about 30 metres uh, 30 meters away and he shouts over the fence, you only won it because the Americans weren't there. So I was still signing this and the lady said, what did he say? Oh, I said, he's actually, uh, he's actually brought home to me what I've still got to do, you know. And she said, no, what did he say? And she was adamant, I, I had to tell her. And bef before I'd finished the signing of it, I said, okay, he said, I only want it because the Americans were, and she went after this guy, and I had to, I had to run after her and stop her. I grabbed her hand, and I said, "Look, he has done me a big favour because this was this was a seed in my mind. This was always going to be a, a an, an issue with the public, and I've got to do something. And he's, I've got to go to. Well, I didn't say I've got to go no. to Germany. I, you know, basically, you know, I've got to take on the Americans and beat them. Um, so remind me who the who were they? It was um, Stanley Floyd. Mel Latini, um, that kind of these were the these were the they, they were the two Americans, yeah. the two, and they were winning everything. Stanley Floyd hadn't been beaten for a, a year and a half indoors outdoors, and um, we had two races. I think a, a young Carl Lewis might have turned up. Oh, I'm, I'm not sure about Carl Lewis at that time, but you're telling me. Yeah, yeah. But there you go. I mean, even Carl Lewis was there, but everybody was there, whether it was European, and I, I, I think it was pr probably just myself as a, a white man in the final. But, mm -hmm. but I got into the final. I didn't think I'd made it, and um, I, I, I was told I made it by a hundredth of a second as the eighth slowest. So they put Mel Latney on my left and, and Stanley Floyd on my right, 
and the gun went and uh, immediately I was eight inches in front of um, Stanley Floyd. Um, there is a story before this, actually, after the semi or after that first round, Margaret and I went through the back of the stadium and there was a long bench and I'm lying on the bench. And this is how it, the whole thing was affecting me. Um, she was sitting on the end of the bench and I was lying on the rest of it and it started to shake. And I, I looked at Margaret, I said, will you stop shaking the bench? And she never said anything. And um, so I laid down again, 10 seconds, 20 seconds later, the bench started to shake quite significantly. And I thought, what's what's she doing this for? Anyway, I looked up and she was standing and I couldn't believe it. I just thought, this is how my body's reacting to the the pressure. And um, so, you know, it was also acting to the fact that I had to go out there and and prove something and do something that possibly I shouldn't have been able to do. Anyway, we, we we got on our marks, Floyd on my right, Mel Latney on my left, the gun goes, I'm eight inches in front uh, immediately. And the middle bit of that race, I can never, I, I'm never, I can never remember. It's, it's a race, it's a strange one. But I remember the last 10 yards and um, Mel Latney was still the eight inches behind me. Sorry, Stanley Floyd on my right was, and I was only looking at him. He was the man, he was the best man. And I went over the line in the lead. Um, as I walked back, Mel Latney came up to me and he said, Alan, even if we had been in Moscow, you would have still won it. You were the best man on the day. You know, and and, and I, I was nearly in tears when I'm saying that. It, it just sort of made me relax that bit more. And he was such a gentleman in saying that. For the record, you won in 10.19 on a, on a slow track. I think uh, it was 10.17, actually. Thank you. OK, well, <laughs> Stan, you're getting fast all the time, Alan. Stan, Stanley Floyd, 10.21. Mel Latney, 10.25. Carl Lewis, 10.3, uh, behind, oh, wow. behind the three of you. Um, uh, very quickly, uh, I'll just say this as we as we as we head on to the rest of the show. Um, not only did you prove that you were the best run in the world at that time, I also have talked to you earlier on about these dinners you go to where the previous Olympic champion there, and it must be astonishing. They celebrate, of course, the life of Jesse Owens, but to be in the room with the Americans who preceded you and with Carl Lewis and now Usain Bolt who have come afterwards, no one can take that away from you, Alan. And that bloke in the park in Scotland, he was wrong. You are the Olympic champion, and you were the fastest man on earth. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's a million things I want to talk to you about, and we'll try and get through as many as we can. I want to talk about in the following year, in the 1981, uh, in the World Cup in Rome, a very important athletics meeting. And I think um, important here um, because uh, you you, you raced against Carl Lewis, who, for being the sort of teenager of the year before, is suddenly the coming power, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, Carl Lewis was uh, coming through. And I mean, You know, no disrespect, he did have an injury. He did have a select, but he was determined to run. He should have let his uh, other countrymen run instead. But he was. He did run ten flat in a year. He knew what kind of shape he had been in. Absolutely, so, yeah. absolutely. You beat him. I did, but I, w- I was lucky as well. Unfortunately, at the time, uh, I had a really bad stomach bug. Um, it was not funny, and uh, every time I warmed up, it just made me feel sick. Um, but I got away with it in that that one race. But I didn't in the two hundred, where Mel Latney beat me by yards. I was a, a bit disgusted with myself. But you know, if you've got something wrong and and I suppose I was selfish enough to carry on and I was the I think I was the only individual British athlete being picked for the European team to run so it was it was quite a privilege you mentioned Mel Latini there I cut you off in your prime when you're talking about him in the previous section of the show when he said to you you are the fast and all the rest of it because you actually were you actually wanted to say thanks to him about that I think. yeah I mean Mel he, he was a very uh, honorable guy and to, to actually say you know to actually say that I was the best man on the day and even if they had been there it wouldn't have made any difference and I take my heart off to him whether that's a, you know it's hypothetical it's it's one of these situations we'll never be able to answer but I thank him for that for saying that to me well Alan it's always the circumstances of races sorry to go for another tributary the, the circumstances of races you know people pull hamstrings people have bad days people have stomach bugs and all the rest of it Absolutely. all that matters Commonwealth Games European Championships Olympic Games is the names one two and three That's in the right. record books you are the Olympic champion that's that Jack um, <laughs> you're also um, in 82 uh, Commonwealth Games lovely uh, I remember very sunny and beautiful Commonwealth Games in Brisbane um, and uh, well you, you you won both the, uh, the you won the hundred meters and you won the two hundred meters in one of, one of the more extraordinary races of, 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 of that I can remember. Yeah, Mike uh, Mike McFarlane, uh, <laughs> a very good teammate in the British team. Uh, he was running for England, obviously. Um, you know, it's it was one of these situations where. I, I didn't feel quite right in the final. I felt phenomenal in the semi, and you know, unfortunately, it just didn't quite work for me in the 200 final. But Mike was on the line as we went over the decision. I was in the tent getting changed at the end of the hundred. Just me in a, a little tent, ten feet square or something. And I, the phone was in the corner. The guy phoned up and he said, "Alan, he said, um, uh, what, do you think, what do you think uh, the result?" I says, "I don't know. You know, who are you?" And he said, "I'm the." Chief timekeeper, the I'm on the photo finish. He says I've got a draw, 
I said, you got a draw. I said, are you a sure? A dead heat. A dead heat, he said. I said, are you sure? I said, you can't split them at all. He said, no, but why don't you come up? And I thought, I'm not going to come up to the stand. You've got a lot of people to deal with. You know, I'm tired. If you're saying it's a draw, it's a draw, you know. Um, still a gold medal. So it's still a gold medal. Um, you know, I think Michael was fairly pleased with that. I think that he was over the moon, to be honest. And, it, 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 you know, he was a teammate. It was probably his best run ever over the 200. And, uh, you know, good on him. He did, he did a good job. You'd already won the 100. I should make the point there that one of the people you beat that day in second place, you actually, you run very fast. It was windy. It was, you had a following Absolutely. win. You ran 10-0-2. Um, trailing in second, uh, three, t- three hundreds behind you, one Ben Johnson of Canada. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, that was early doors for him, and I think it was a learning it's, process. It was, that was what's so weird about Johnson, wasn't it? He was a really, really talented and brilliant runner before he decided to change his shape and become the shape of a wardrobe. Well, yeah, I think I think, I think it was said in the book that I think he was doing things that were a bit naughty the, then, yeah. before then. But I think, you know, things changed for him, as you say, you know, whether it was a cocktail or illegal substance or not. But, um, you know, people go in that direction. But... It was uh, for me. It was a bit of a strange race, and uh, didn't quite pick up what I wanted to do in that race and the way I wanted to do it and how I felt. And that was the most important thing: how I felt. I didn't feel hundred percent, but I won the race, and that was that was all. The problem I had, I had a, a month with beforehand, which wasn't right, and I, that was the only period that I was able to actually build up for that Commonwealth Games and get myself back together. I'd actually moved down south, so a lot of things that were consistent weren't actually happening the the ability to actually get to a training track and so forth was like Windsor which was miles away 45 minutes and you'd do that every day back and forth it was just it was it was taking its toll wasn't it you know Scottish attitudes a wee bit different I didn't have the the coaches the the help that I did have up in Scotland I didn't have the I didn't have that unique situation so it was it was tearing me away from the normal and uh, so I, I, I was pleased that I got back together again in the in the between after Brisbane, um, in the, those Commonwealth triumphs in in eighty uh, two, the, the rest of your career, I think, um, you come away from that peak that you enjoyed, um, and also we have to be honest, uh, people always talk about Carl Lewis, but Calvin Smith also emerged out of the United States, and it became harder for you, I think, to to compete at the to be the, the the world's best. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I think to be honest, the um, there was an age factor coming into it that uh, you can't do much about, and that you know, as much as I was, my preparation was one hundred percent. You know, you just couldn't do much about the other factors in life you know you know in a way every race was like getting to the boxing ring and taking a taking a punch in the chin and and being able to take it and get back in again later on and and that's what the that's what the event was like um for me because it was it was so draining on my mental uh build-up every time i raced in these these world-class uh events it was it was taking a lot out of me but but listen you know in 83 there's a world championships the first one in the helsinki yeah uh, fourth in the hundred and fourth in the two hundred. That was a big disappointment. Annoying too. I was. It was because there was a false start in the hundred, and and Emmett King was behind me uh, immediately, and uh, it were pulled back. It was a West German that took it at that took the false start at that time. And when we restarted, he the, that was the difference between us. He was up. I just you know you, you had a one good race, one good uh, start in me, and and these are things that you've just got to deal with. I just wasn't on song mentally. But to come in fourth, not on song, was it was it was fine. I was quite happy with that. You went to Los Angeles and and, and defended mm. your title. 
I d- no, I didn't. Well, that was uh, sorry. You, you, you didn't win, but you went to to defend your yes, title. Yes, to, de- to yeah. defend the title. Yeah, I mean, sure. I I got a toe problem. Um, somebody had uh, advised me to put something in my spike to help me get up in my toes, and I was stupid enough to to be desperate enough to 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 uh, take the advice and. It overextended the big toe. I had an operation on that after Los Angeles. I was a year out after that. It was disappointing because of the the toe. The toe got infected as well. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things that happened. That, you know, if I wish I could have changed. And, and, you know, you make these decisions in life and you make a, a, a wrong move, a wrong decision. You, you've just got to um, live with it. you just got to go with it. And uh, it was the biggest heartfelt um, mistake I'd, met, uh, I'd made in Los, for Los Angeles. Well, look, Alan. There's no, there's no, there's no shame in you were beaten by one of the great legends of the sport. Eventually, to, to Carl Lewis has his era. You retired in 1988, and I, I want to finish this section of the show by reflecting on the fact that if anything wanted to demonstrate how quick you were, how brilliant a runner you were, never mind that you're Olympic champion, which is the gold medal you have. But here we are, 35 years later, in, in the cases, and Linford Christie has broken your British record. But you're still the fastest Scotsman ever. Now, Scotland is a traditional p- powerhouse of sprinting, powder hall, the professional circuit, and all the rest of it. But in the 30 years that followed, nobody from Scotland has broken your records. I mean, it's extra- to me, that's an almost bizarre thought. I, d- I don't know. I mean, you know, there are people there. And I, there's no doubt that the, there could be somebody coming up in the next few years uh, to overtake my, my times. But... Uh, you know, there was a few in the past that have got very close to it. Um, records are there to be beaten. Someday we'll beat it in the in the future. There's no question about that. It just tells you, in some ways it tells you, I and mean, we're a small nation. You know, we're not the most athletic nation in the world. You know, I had the right attitude. I had the, the right athletic ability at the time, and I got the I got the best of help as well. And therefore, that ingredient helped me to be who I was and to have these these records. And you know, if somebody comes along, they would have to have the same attitude, probably more ability, and you know, beat these. I guess I guess I guess I I need to be a bit more charitable to the people <laughs> who followed you. The fact <laughs> of the matter is, to run ten two, they're going to have to do ten one. They're going to have to run ten one zero, are they? To absolutely to yeah. to, 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 to yeah. break. Alan, um, you retired from the sport. Um, you've moved down south. You live in Guildford in, in Surrey. Um, you work at the university there, keeping up your engineering. I, I know you're something of an expert on wind tunnels and stuff. But of course, <laughs> your life has still been pretty much dominated by sport, both t- uh, uh, taking part in sport. I know you're a very keen golfer, but also you've coached a lot of different sports. So you've become a fitness and explosive uh, coach mm. in a whole range of... Uh, you've helped footballers, um, uh, tennis players, rugby players. And I know, for instance, also to help uh, coach bobsleigh. Yeah, bobsleigh. It was the part of regiment. Not a bloke, not a bloke <laughs> called bobsleigh. Actual <laughs> no. bobsleigh. Well, in fact, I'd been asked if I would uh, push somebody in the past, uh, a number of years before. And it, it was always a, just a little seed that was there. And, and uh, I was approached by the power regiment. Uh, Captain Snowball, and uh, he's not called Captain Snowball. I'm afraid he is, mate. Everybody, I mean, in that in that period of time, yes. But you know, you've been so good so far. You've told us your story, and now I you're should, starting to take the Mickey out of the program. I shouldn't have mentioned that name, Captain but yes. Captain Snowball. Yeah, oh, I'm gone. But um, Captain Snowball. In a winter Olympic sport. All right. Yeah. I'm going. I'm, all right. I'm letting it go. Go on. So anyway, um, you know, so I worked with them for a, a couple of years, and uh, it was very good. They won all the push starts, which is uh, which, which is what I was. It's brought very in for. similar to the start in sprinting, isn't it? You're down it, the crowd yeah. position, and then it's all about explosive. Yeah, power. it's about thirty, maybe thirty-five yards, forty yards. Big thighs. 
big, big thighs. You've got to be a certain weight. I was a wee bit too light, but I did it with him for, I did uh, about a dozen and a half runs. Uh, the first time we went down, I was with Sean Olsen, the bronze medalist in 92, I think it was, uh-huh. and uh, in the four-man. And I, he was the first guy I, I pushed. And uh, uh, basically what happened is the, the bobsleigh came out the runners. The, there's grooves in the, the ice, and it came out, out the grooves because the ice had built, uh, had built up, so there was very little groove. And we come out, and because we had been training very specifically, we kept it going straight. We got in the bobsleigh, and it was the fastest run that day, so fastest uh, push start. Let me ask you something that just occurred to me. The, the Premier League is forever going on now about how fast players are. Bale is super fast. Theo Walcott is fast. Aaron Lennon is an amazingly fast runner when you see him running against other footballs, but his arms are all flapping about mm. and things. Do you ever watch modern footballs and think, give me, give me a fortnight with him and I'll show you fast? Well, I, I remember Malcolm McDonald doing superstars and watching him running, and I'll tell you what. It, it, the, the then he so, even sent the forward, of course. Well, yeah, yeah. But, uh, for Newcastle. Yeah. And the thing is that he, his arms were all over the place, and yet he still, I think he still ran 10-9, yeah. which was phenomenal. But, you know, what these guys have got today is is, is not that, that type of speed. It's, it's very short, off-the-mark speed. But I would still say you can improve it. Of course. You know, I mean, look, you know, what I did as an athlete, the commitment and so forth, could be taken on to as, as footballers. In saying that, you know, I, I love watching football at the top end and watching characters like Bale play football because they're, they're, they're class act. I, I just uh, I remember that Jermaine Defoe, I mean, obviously the Tottenham thing with me, um, I remember Jermaine Defoe went away one summer about two years ago and did specialist sprint training with an athletic sprint coach and came back a better footballer. He'd learned to control his running. Interesting, he wasn't running particularly much faster, but his di- the directness of his running had definitely changed and he was getting into his running much quicker. It was, it was fascinating to watch. Listen, um, I'm going to talk to... Uh, well, let's talk about how, how the man you are now... Uh, nowadays by joining one of your friends Don Busby is uh, he works for the BBC in Southern Counties down there in Surrey of course you've left it's not in Scotland anymore but worried about cold weather actually today Alan Wells <laughs> unbelievable and joining us now hello Dom Hi, Danny. How are you? Very, very good indeed. I'm very much good. enjoying the couple of hours I'm spending here with Alan Wells. Um, of course, I was a, a, a very young man when he won that Olympic, oh, uh, that Olympic uh, medal, um, the Olympic gold medal. Um, but of course, he's gone on to do all the coaching and all, all the rest of it down there. What, what, what have you? What's the Alan Wells that you've come to know? Oh, Alan Wells is a. Uh, he, he won't thank me for this, but he's a very modest man. Um, you know, I, I look back at what Alan's achieved, and when I first met him. Um, he used to come into our studios when I worked at Southern Counties Radio, as it was then, and yes. um, I instantly recognised Alan Wells as a sports fan and as an athlete at a, at a much minor level. I, I knew instantly Alan, and I was itching to talk to him. I didn't know how to approach him, and I knew that if I did, I'd say all the wrong things and bug the poor man to death. But um, uh, he's, he's a modest man. He, he has achieved something that, that very, very few people in history have achieved. He's a... Uh, an Olympic champion um, and, you know, a silver medalist in the 200 metres, which people also forget. And, you know, the thing is, Danny, about that Games in 1980, Alan never got the recognition that I think that he deserved. Dom, I'm so glad you said that because when I ask him that, he he pretends not to know what I'm talking about. But because of what happened with Cohen over in particular, his achievement got slightly overlooked and I think it's wrong. I think you're exactly spot on there, uh, especially in the context of those games, of course, the boycotted games, and in many people's eyes, when it came to the sprints, 
you, you know, the, the man on the street hadn't heard of Alan Wells before he suddenly won Olympic gold. And for those who did know about athletics, they were saying things like, yeah, but he's a bit of a paper champion because, of course, the Americans aren't there and it doesn't really count for anything. But here's the thing, Danny, and this is the headline that for me about Alan's career, what people forget is that in the weeks after those Olympic Games on the European circuit, when the Americans did arrive, and let's not forget, they will have been busting a gut to beat the Olympic champion, to put him in his place. They couldn't do it. And he didn't just beat him once, he beat him again and again. And he proved that he was the fastest sprinter in the world at that time. And as as I always say, nobody says that Carl Lewis wasn't the real champion in 84 because there was a massive boycott of the the, uh, communist countries who were always producing brilliant sprinters. So it's always a a very false argument, Dom. Um, But you're right, though. He's a very modest fella about his achievements and he has no need uh, to be so. Um, That's right, Danny. And and just one one other thing while hmm. while we're on the topic i heard you talking about the footballers there again his modesty you know he, he probably hasn't told you this but um of course margot who in a, her own right was a fabulous sprinter she and alan in many ways changed the the way sprinters approached the art of sprinting um you know you just got to look on youtube at the way they those speedball sessions that they used and he the talked enormous- about those yeah the enormous, you know, strength that that gave Alan. Um, his starts, of course, were, were legendary. They, they, they really changed the way people thought about about sprinting. He's shaking his head children. now, but he's but, but he's just been too. Go on, Alan, say your piece. I was just going to say, don't come on and be complimentary, and you've just done. <laughs> You're oh, embarrassing. Oh, don't me. worry. I'm, oh, I'm behind your back, he says terrible yet. things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, now you can do well. Very briefly, because Alan is telling me he's a very good golfer. Playing yes, off six. Well, that's, that's unfortunate. Lucky, yeah. Really, yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a lot of luck involved there. I think. Yeah. Um, no, he's, he of course he, he loves his golf. I mean, life's very different for, for Alan now. But but just just to finish what I was saying about you know you we were talking about the footballers mm. there. Yes. Um, I wonder how many of the British Lions this summer who'll be boarding that plane to go to Australia have come under the wing of Margot Wells and and the Wellfast work that, that they do. My you know, guess, she, looking at the coached, list of people she's coached, is probably about a third of the squad. Yes, absolutely <laughs> yeah. incredible. Huge influence all goes back to the work that she did with Alan in, in 1980. You know, it's still, it just goes to show that that sprinting is still very much relevant today. Well, listen, Dom, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. That's Dom Busby, friend of Alan's, who, uh, in around the BBC, just giving us some focus on what, what Alan has achieved since he retired. You mentioned your golf there. You're all, you've also had other things happen to you. You've got an MBE. Um, I don't quite know why you haven't got a knighthood, but that's a, well, that's a mm. personal bugbear of mine, <laughs> um, given some of the people who are getting knighthoods from the current Olympics. Why, why haven't you got a knighthood, Alan? I think the MBE is recognition, and, and it's uh, rightly so for what I did. And, you know, other people make decisions as well that you have no control over. And, and you know, I'm quite happy. As, as I say, you know, was, it, this athletics was a period in my life. Yes. I committed myself to it, and I did what I did. And if people remember the good times that I, you know, that my involvement was in the sport, then that's great, you know. Do you bring the same level of... You would use the word focus, I would say fanaticism, to everything else you do, the golf, um, your, your own work. I think, I think yes. In fact, in some ways, the, the attitude to the athletics has is, um, is given me a better way of focusing on life and how people think, the psychology people use, and, and how some people, when they say things, it's, it's a, a, 
you know how they can come up with some you know some of the statements they make it just you know you can analyze things in a different way having having been through the roller so to speak uh, the athletic roller um and it's quite interesting and you get a feel for how people um how people take over and 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 of course when you're seven when you're you know in line with seven others on the on the on the track in the final you know how these people are thinking because they're thinking very similar to you except you're just thinking that wee bit more positively hopefully and i know in the last summer people were seeking you out to get your expertise for the coverage of the olympics on the television um uh, i wouldn't say your mug was never off the television but you're on there plenty <laughs> of times talking um how much did you enjoy what was a remarkable um event here in london did you enjoy the olympics in london when when it was announced that we got the games the london got the games i just said to Margaret, god <laughs> we're just going to be on a roll roller coaster all the way up to the day and and we were and and you know people there was negative thoughts uh, that long before it and uh, I think at the end of the day it's been so so successful um, it did cost a penny or two but it was so successful I think you know we've we've gained something from it in a different way um, I hear that London are looking for the 22 Commonwealth Games um, you know, it's great. I, I, you know, how could how could anybody top that off? I, I, I don't think so. And um, what did you make of the hundred meters final? I mean, basically, what I'm saying is, what did you make of Usain Bolt? <laughs> well, he's poor he's, Johan Blake. I mean, how fast has he got to run? Well, the two of them are very, you know, the phenomena. You know, the Jamaican situation seems to be the right ingredient, very similar to what we had in Scotland at my time, but in a different level. You know, but you know, you've got fast guys training together, and that's what we had. I think you know, somebody mentioned, did, did I think that Bolt would beat his world record? Uh, certainly over the 200 I, I, I doubt it you know and if I say I doubt it and if he's listening he'll go out and prove me wrong but it's so so quick I mean you know just taking 200s of that that's eight inches it's going to be phenomenal you know somebody say oh can, can you do under 19 I don't think so I think it really would it would it would possibly mean going to Mexico City yes doing it at and, altitude, and doing it altitude like yes. Jim Hines's record yeah, I mean if, if the conditions are fair at sea level or whatever I think it'll be a very difficult thing for him to do because, as I say, when every time he goes out there, it's get like getting in the boxing ring. He's 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 fighting himself to get up, get the adrenaline going, being physically committed 100%. It's always difficult once you've done it like he has. Have and you met him? I haven't. Oh. I haven't. No. No doubt no. you will at one of these Olympic champion I was dinners. Close. I was close to it. Very, very good. No doubt you will when you have one of these uh, dinners for just the people who've won the 100 metres <laughs> at the Olympics. So, Adam, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Let me ask you, I mean, you may well answer that Olympic final, but uh, looking back on your athletics career rather than your whole life, what's the thing that's made you proudest? What, um, what, do, you, what do you look back? How do you look back on your time as an athlete? I, I think really that... You know, I had a chance, I had an opportunity, I took that chance, um, and the opportunities came along. I was successful and achieved something special. That people remember as well, which is great. And people, one or two people will remember. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Which means we've heard about some of your life now. You're still, you know, you're a very fit man. You you love your golf. You're involved in coaching. You've got, you work as well. Hopefully there'll be many, many more years of Alan Wells being with us. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about another 35, Alan. Yeah. Um, take you. Let's take. Let's take. Let's take you up to a, tra- a telegram from the Queen. What do you still look forward to? What do you hope your life holds for you going forward, Alan? I mean, I don't know how goals oriented you are, or whether you're totally relaxed 
down, just waiting to see what what comes along. Well, I, I think there's a lot of um, satisfaction from the golf. Uh, I really do. I mean, you know, we're at the stage in life where I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sort of packing in. But you know, taking the dog, uh, my daughter's dog, a uh, little puggy, I run is is such a, a relief it's, it's such a happy little and thing and great fun for you because he's a little tiny dog presumably you can run faster than well, him as well I've, I've been criticised by a golfer on the golf uh, um, passing him one day on the tee and the guy says oh, it's a bit unfair look at the size of his legs and I said yeah, yeah but he's got four and <laughs> yeah that's, that's but, fair yeah. Uh, no but I think that uh, I think just to be healthy still enjoy life and you know when something like Pietro Menea comes up and makes you think how lucky in you are. In the last week and a half. Yeah, absolutely. Died young, yeah. It, it just makes you feel that, you know, hopefully I've got a few years left. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening. And make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify for more top Talk Sport content. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.